It's January 25th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour. My name is David McAdam. I want to congratulate you if you've been following with us on this podcast. Today is a very special day. We complete the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis today, and then we'll be starting the book of Exodus. Both of these books of Moses are referenced by Jesus in the New Testament. That is because Jesus was in the beginning of Genesis, and he is the author of a greater and truer Exodus that was foreshadowed in the second book of the Bible that we're going to be starting today. So I am reading from the English Standard Version. We're in Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, that is, beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as they had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, 
I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived a hundred and ten years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being one hundred and ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's the end of the book of Genesis. And we begin now with Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, where the descendants of Jacob and their tribes are increasing greatly. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2 Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. 
when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made with bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Today we completed the book of Genesis. Jacob and Joseph die, casting their faith upon the keeper of the promises. Israel's tribe had increased from the original twelve sons to the seventy when they come to settle in Goshen, in Genesis 46:27, and in Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. They grow to the multitudes that will return to the promised land when they become a nation. We have already seen the parallel with Jesus calling the twelve in Matthew 10 and the seventy in Luke 10, verses 1 and 17, suggesting the continuity in the plan of salvation and the privilege of involvement extended to those whom he chooses. Reflecting on the book of Genesis, we're reminded of Psalm 8. The God who created the heavens and the earth had you in mind from the beginning. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! We learn that the God-given status of man as his co-regent on earth in Genesis 1 and 2 was ruined by mankind's disobedience in Genesis 3. Instead of taking his place in the rule of God, he became ruled by sin in Genesis 4, verse 7. The only escape would be through the sin offering. It is interesting that the Hebrew word found in Genesis 4, 7, shathath, is both the word for sin and sin offering, and it can mean both. Which will we submit to, the rule of sin or the rule of the sin offering? The good news is that the God who created us promised a Redeemer. He made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the God who so loved the world that he would give his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In John 3.16, Jesus, God's Son, while never being less than God, emptied himself of divine prerogatives and humbled himself to be born as a man, perfectly submitted to the rule of God the Father through fellowship of the Holy Spirit in order to restore mankind's place in the rule of God. He lived the life that we should have lived, 
a life of perfect obedience under God's holy law. He died the death that God's law said that we should have died. By this, He fulfills the law on our behalf and righteously reconciles the lawbreakers to Himself. This makes it possible that those who repent and believe on Him receive forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit to live under His rule. The book of Genesis closes with the assurance of forgiveness. After Jacob's death, Joseph's brothers are afraid that Joseph will hate them and retaliate because of their previous terrible treatment of him. But Joseph assures them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In Genesis 50 verses 19 to 20. Some see this as a rhetorical question, suggesting that Joseph is saying, Can't you see that I am where God has put me? It is also a picture of how we, who have been forgiven and are reconciled to God through faith in Christ, are now standing in God's place as we offer forgiveness to others. Can't you see that I am standing in God's place? Indeed, we can see in Joseph's case that God worked through all of his suffering to bring about a marvelous plan of salvation for his brothers and all his father's household. The book of Exodus is definitely a sequel. It begins with a conjunction, now, which could also read as and, as it continues the Genesis narrative. The first chapter of Exodus references Joseph and asks that we remember how he made it possible for Israel to be treated with favor in Egypt. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We read that in chapter 1, verse 8. The situation changes in Egypt, and now Israel will find itself being greatly oppressed. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In it we saw the beginning of creation, the beginning of mankind, and the beginning of marriage and family. We saw the beginning of human society and its wayward path. We also saw the budding of God's plan of redemption. We saw how God began to prepare a people through whom he would bring forth the Messiah to be the Redeemer and Blesser of all nations of the earth. God began this work by calling a man, Abraham, and giving him a promised son, Isaac. From that son comes a family of many sons. In the book of Exodus, that multitude becomes a nation. Exodus is the book of deliverance. In the book of Genesis, we have a picture of whom God saves, those who believe his gospel. In the book of Exodus, we have a picture of how God saves, his plan of redemption through a mediator, the appointed sacrifice, and the applied blood of the Passover lamb, the miraculous provisions for food and guidance, and the tabernacle in the wilderness. The key figure in the book of Exodus at first appears to be Moses, but in the Gospel of Luke, we realize that although Exodus describes the historic deliverance of God's people from the hard taskmasters of Egypt, and the angel of death under the leadership of Moses, it foreshadows a greater exodus by which believers are delivered from death and hell itself through the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 31, some eight days after these sayings, he, that is Jesus, took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became as white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. 
Now, the word for departure is actually exodus in the Greek. It is a word to describe his accomplishment through his atoning death as the Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb. So Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about the cross, the exodus, the departure, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus came to accomplish for us our exodus, our deliverance. In the New Testament, we are assured that what Moses wrote about in this book is written for our benefit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and verse 11. And it speaks to us of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The book of Exodus speaks to us of the cross of Jesus Christ, whereby we who believe are delivered from the hard taskmasters of sin and death, the world system and its pharaoh, Satan. It speaks of how we are brought into the glorious liberty of a new beginning by being joined to the greater Moses in his death, his burial, and resurrection, figured in the parting of the Red Sea, and becoming a royal priesthood and a holy nation led by his spirit, figured by the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. The major sections of Exodus are, number one, the story of a people in bondage, describing the need for redemption. That's in chapters 1 through 6. 2. The story of a people delivered from bondage, demonstrating the power of the Redeemer, in chapters 7 through 18. And then 3. The story of a people becoming a nation, describing the provision for the redeemed, the light of the law and the pattern of the tabernacle, in chapters 19 through 40. A summary verse might be, quote, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. Exodus chapter 15 verse 13. So today we read of the circumstances surrounding the birth of Moses and come to understand how he got his name, how he is drawn out of the water in Exodus chapter 2 verse 10. Now let's read from the New Testament, beginning with Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. In Matthew 16, we have this important passage where Peter, as a spokesman for the twelve, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, 
Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Chapter 17 And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus gives us much to think about in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? What matters is not our opinion. What matters is what the Father has declared. What matters is what the Holy Spirit has revealed. What matters is whether we have received revelation as to who Jesus of Nazareth really is. This is not the disciples' first confession in the New Testament that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. But it is the first time that Jesus reveals that he is building his church with those who are enabled by God to make that confession, having received revelation from the Father that Jesus is the Christ. Notice that Jesus uses the Greek word for build, oikodomeo, and the Old Testament uses the Hebrew word for build, in describing how God constructed the bride for Adam. Remember that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22? The church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail is built of that which is of Christ, even as the first woman was built of that which is of Adam. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only existing institution that will last forever. It is important to note that Jesus told his disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ at this point in Matthew 16, verse 20, just as he had told the leper who was cleansed in Matthew 8, verse 4, and those who were healed in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. He said, don't announce their healings. The reason is that to declare only who Jesus is as Lord, Christ, King, Healer, Cleanser, would be an incomplete and inadequate gospel. We need to declare not only who Jesus is, but what he has done, the finished work of redemption. 
his sinless life that qualifies him to be our perfect Savior, his substitutionary death that pays our penalty for sin, and his resurrection that vindicates every claim. The gospel is the good news of who God is and what he has done in the person of his Son. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. In Matthew 16.21, it is only after Jesus had been crucified as the atoning Lamb of God and raised from the dead on the third day that he gave the orders to go and tell. In Matthew 28, verse 7, it is only after Jesus accomplishes our exodus through his death, burial, and resurrection that we have the gospel. Yes, he is the Christ. But the good news is what he has done and how we can receive its benefits. Through believing on him, We can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and those who belong to Him. We make the same discovery in the next chapter. After Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus transfigured in His glorious state, and Moses and Elijah appearing with Him, discussing the finished work of redemption that He would accomplish at Jerusalem in Luke 9.31, Jesus commands them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. It is humbling to see how a person like Peter could be a spokesman for the Father one moment and for Satan the next in Matthew 16.22. This is a reminder that we would do well to be quick to hear and to hear the right voice and slow to speak in James chapter 1 verse 19. The call to discipleship is for all those who have a revelation of who Jesus is. Following Jesus is costly but our expenditure cannot compare to the rewards that he freely gives. In Matthew 16, verse 24, we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now let's read Psalm 21, a joyful psalm of thanksgiving. This is another psalm for the choir master, a psalm of David, where the king rejoices in the Lord's strength. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. 
you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is a joyful song of thanksgiving. Do you rejoice and thank the Lord for answered prayer? The Lord has made us a kingdom of priests, or as the King James Version reads, kings and priests to God. So we can read verses 1 through 7 in this psalm and put ourselves in the place of the king. Instead of the word king and he, substitute the pronoun I and substitute the pronoun me for him, and you will personalize this psalm as a prayer of thanksgiving. For example, you could read, Lord, you have given me my heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of my lips. You meet me with rich blessings. Isn't that the truth? Verses 8 to 12 remind us that there will come a day when God takes vengeance on unrepentant sinners. Now from the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. In this chapter, we have worldly wisdom personified as a seductress. Beginning with verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. This proverb reminds us that we can be easily seduced by people's words and entertain thoughts that remove us from the path of right living. The proverb not only exposes worldly wisdom as a dangerous seductress, but points out the fact that the seductress doesn't even know where she is going. So it is with the wisdom of this world, and the world by wisdom knows not God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wise counsel. Thank you for sending your Son and the Holy Spirit to reveal his true identity to us. We are grateful for the reconciliation provided through his cross that enables us to come to you as spirit-born royal family. Help us to live lives worthy of our calling, taking up our cross, the revelation of our co-crucifixion, co-burial, co-resurrection, and co-ascension as in Christ ones. May we not neglect to give you thanks and praise and to publish the good news that the work of redemption is finished, perfectly executed through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can receive your gifts of perfect forgiveness and eternal life by putting our full trust in him and all that he has done on our behalf. And so we ask you to bless our meditation on your word this day as we seek to please you in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a blessing to be reading the Word of God together with you today, and God willing, we'll be back tomorrow as we press on with the one-year Bible tour. I always like to remind you that we provide a free service, sending out a daily email with a written copy of our commentary on each day's reading with color maps, charts, and illustrations that folks find helpful. You can subscribe to this free email by going to our website, newlife.org. And you can always contact us by email as our email address is podcast at newlife.org. We are happy to answer your questions, receive your feedback and comments, or learn more about how we can be praying for you. Also, you can help us in our mission to spread the Word of God through this podcast 
by indicating it's a blessing to you, subscribing wherever you'll get your podcasts, leaving a review, or giving us a like. We trust that the rest of your day be full of inspiration and that you will seize each moment as a gift from God and share the joy. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Shalom.